In 2004, Bad Religion released the song Los Angeles is Burning. The song has references to Orwell's 1984, but let's be honest. We all know that deep down what they were really singing about was 1997's Volcano, because that movie is not that bad. Welcome, welcome, one and all to It's Not That Bad, the podcast that looks for A grades in B movies. And I am really, really psyched because I have a confession to make. I love a good disaster film. And we haven't had a chance to cover too many of them on the show so far. But today is the day because we are talking about 1997's Volcano. And here to join me to go down this lava-filled road is Sean from the Review It Yourself podcast. Sean, welcome to the show. How are you doing, man? Yeah, can't complain. I'm doing pretty, doing pretty well. Thank you for uh, thank you for having me on. Now, before we get into this movie and why you chose this film, uh, for those of you who haven't had a chance to listen to it, I got to appear on the uh, Defend It Yourself part of your show, talking about the pirate movie. But for those who haven't listened to the Review It Yourself podcast yet, please let our listeners know what it's all about. Yeah, thank you. Um, it was a pleasure having you on, and it was it was a. I really enjoyed that film. You know, I did. There wasn't much defending going on, on that one. Um, yeah, I'm Sean from the Review it Yourself. Uh, well, it's just called Review it Yourself. I had to add the podcast, you know, just so people find it. But uh, yeah, I'm Sean from Review it Yourself. Um, my podcast is basically a film, TV, documentary review podcast. It's me joined by various guests. I have a lot of regulars that I bring back. Other podcasters mainly sometimes members of my family or friends so it's, it's all good fun um basically you come on and you review a film and it's very it's like a natural start it's just a conversation it's like you've just dropped into your friend's conversation there's very very little there's no music there's nothing like that it's just a conversation and hopefully it's a good laugh and it's entertaining we've also got more sad series than you can throw a stick at or damn with lava, I suppose. Uh, we've got Defend It Yourself, which is where other podcasters or anybody who wants to comes on and defends their favorite film, as you you know, as you did with the pirate movie. Um, also, there's other sad series as well. So yeah, there's there's plenty there's plenty out there, and I do enjoy it. So yeah, uh, ho- go over and have a listen. Hopefully, you enjoy it. And, you know, it was a ton of fun being on the show. So thank you for having me on there. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to review it yourself and any of the side shows, be sure to find them wherever you get your podcast. Great listen. But now we're talking about 1997's Volcano. And, and this was your pick. And I'm not going to lie. I squealed a little bit, you know, that happy squeal when you mentioned it. But why did you suggest 1997's Volcano? Well, it's just one of those films that, I mean, I- I feel it's been forgotten. Like, I, like people will, if you say Dante's Pig, most people will remember that. You know, Brosnan, uh, Linda Hamilton in one of her few, she didn't seem to do many films, but it's a good one of those. And you kind of, it seems to have been forgotten, Volcano. Uh, I did a, I've just always enjoyed it. I did an episode of my podcast with Bill from Bill Reads Bad Reviews. Shout out to Bill, bless him. Uh, and we just had so much fun talking about it. And I thought, and you gave me a little bit of a list, and I was like, I, I want to talk about Volcano again. Like, I will happily talk about that film. I, I love it for what it is. I am I am a real, I have a real soft spot for disaster films. Like, one of my go-to put-it-on-and-enjoy-it films 
whatever mood I'm in is Roland Emmerich's 2012. Love that film. I love The Day After Tomorrow. I love Independence Day. Uh, I just, I love those kind of films where things just get destroyed. Like, even like Independence Day Resurgence, which, you know, isn't that bad. Give it a bit of a go. But I just, I have a real thing for those kind of disaster films because I just think they're great. And yeah, I thought I've got to do that one. It was it wasn't so much a choice as a it has to be that one. I'll I'll admit one of the first disaster movies I remember actually watching was the classic Earthquake, and it was it was so much fun because you're right. Like when you watch a disaster film, and you mentioned some of my favorites there with like the Day After Tomorrow. Absolutely love that one. Um, yeah, there, there's so much going on, and you know a lot of it depends on what they focus on. Dante's Peak, yes, it was it was actually really really good. I there's one sticking point in that film and if we ever do cover that film I, I have one sticking point for that film but that's that's for a later episode but we're talking about this one we're talking about volcano but before we do it is time to take this los angeles based disaster film and trailerize it we've seen los angeles deal with earthquakes tidal waves and mega sharks now the City of Angels will deal with the hellish nightmare from the depths below in Volcano. Tommy Lee Jones will have to rally all the resources LA has to offer to stop a lava flow from destroying La La Land. But considering that the cultural capital of California is also home to Gridlock, Scientology, and the Kardashians, he might want to rethink saving the day. And before you say anything, yes, we know the volcanoes in Los Angeles are impossible. It's a movie. Get over it. Tommy Lee Jones stars in the second volcano film of 1997, Volcano, rated PG-13 from Pyrotechnic Geology. It actually is the second 1997 Volcano film because Dante's Peak came out in February of that year. Volcano came out after it. It's kind of like the year when we had... um, uh, Armageddon and... And Deep uh, Impact. Impact. Yeah. The year year after, I believe. Yeah. And it's the same year. Also, keep in mind, too, also released in 1997 was Tidal Wave, where Los Angeles got basically hit with this giant tsunami that... LA didn't have a good year in 1997, apparently. No, a lot of people wanted rid of it by the sounds of it. It's like this stretch of things where you had like when Independence Day came out, you also had like Godzilla take, you know, destroying New York in that film. So basically for a while, New York was the epicenter of disaster films. And then it moved over to L.A. Keep in mind, too, you also have like Battle Los Angeles as well, which I, oh, I was love. about to mention. I love that film. I was it's about to so mention good. That. Yeah. Like, it's such an underrated little gem, isn't it? Yeah. And the thing is, like when you when you see it, and it's like, OK, this looks kind of chess when you watch the trailer and then you watch the film I'm like, no, 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 this is good. This is really it's like a good. Seri- it's, a, it's the tone. It's like a serious tone, isn't it? Like, you think it's going to be just complete cheese fest. Mm-hmm. But you watch it and you go, hang on, this is like somebody's gone right. Semper Ryan meets kind of like Independence Day and you go, that's not going to work. And they go, oh, no, it will. It will. Yeah. And you kind of, okay, I'm with you. It's like the car. Have you ever seen the car? Uh, no, I don't think I have. Oh, if you're not. Oh, my God. Right. There's a tr- uh, I'll tell you what. You can come back on my podcast and you can- we'll review the car. The car is, oh, it's- I don't know how to describe it just just don't read anything about it just go watch it because it's 
Oh, it's 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 horrendous, but it's also unbelievable. I I don't know how that mixes together, but you know it's got it's got um Aaron Eckhart, Aaron Eckhart who plays Two Face and who's in Battle of Angeles. He's also in it. Oh, it's, it's a great film. It's oh. terrible, but it's good. Sign me up. I'm I'm always down for that. But yeah, the thing with Battle of Los Angeles is it kind of hit that perfect middle ground between Deep Impact and Armageddon. Like Armageddon was just a straight up popcorn flick, and Deep Impact took a more serious human story look at uh, an asteroid hitting. Battle of Los Angeles kind of kind of found like that happy middle ground that had a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and put it together to make a really really good movie. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, it's it's. I've always enjoyed the you know deep impact for the the way it goes about things. You know, it shows the impact that you would have on the society. Of being told, yeah, you do realize that probably most of you are going to die. You know, and I I, I enjoy I enjoy them about it. <laughs> um, it's a bit dark, but um, yeah. And then you get obviously on the other side of it, just the total cheese fest that is Armageddon, um, which I I showed my friend who'd never seen it on the first podcast I ever did. Um, which didn't last very long, and he he didn't like it, and he fell asleep watching it, and I I, I I've never been so disappointed in a friend. <laughs> <laughs> it's occasionally there are movies out there that are the litmus test, and it's like if you like this, you're my people, and if you don't like this, then we have to question everything about this friendship going forward. Yeah, I was just yeah, and he'd never seen Braveheart either, so I was like, right, sit down. You need an education <laughs> in films. <laughs> oh wow. I mean, Brave. I don't know how many people out there have actually can say they haven't seen Braveheart. It's kind of like Titanic. Even if you didn't like it or not, and whether you like it or not, it's not the the question here. It's one of those films where like everyone has seen it, or at least a a, a large chunk of it. Would depending on how many VHS tapes you had at the time. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> All right, but let's get into who's in this film. The movie stars Tommy Lee Jones, the late Anne Hesch, Gabby Hoffman, Don Cheadle, Jacqueline Kim, Keith David, John Corbett, and Marcelo Thetford. However, there was an almost starring in this one, according to IMDb. In the role of Dr. Amy Barnes, as played by Anne Hesch, Gillian Anderson from The X-Files was under consideration for this role, and I can I can see why they went with they thought about Gillian Anderson. Yeah, that probably would have worked a lot better. I mean, I'm not going to complain. I'd rest in peace, Anesh. But yeah, I think she's one of the biggest issues people have with the film. In that, I don't know, her character's just a little bit off. You don't quite know what the point of her is, and I, I the way she's written is just a bit odd. Um, yeah, it's all a bit strange. But yeah, and it, it's like the fact, you know, she goes, she, she breaks the rules. She goes down into a hall with her geologist friend. Her geologist friend dies and she tells nobody. She doesn't inform her boss. She doesn't mention to anybody. She just looks at the sky and goes, oh, you'd have loved this. Whatever, you know, Rachel, you'd have loved this. So, so she does. She doesn't tell anybody she's dead. Doesn't inform anybody. It's like what? What are you doing? Like what? Are you, what are you, it doesn't it doesn't come up at the rest of the film? Is it? I'm pretty sure you mentioned that. I'm pretty sure you'd have been like, yeah, my my colleague's just like burned to death. I mean, it's it's all a bit. Yeah, I, I don't know. Say what you will. It's strange. The, the Los Angeles Geology Department zero days without incident. Uh, <laughs> Under consideration for the role of Kelly Rourke, uh, so Mike Rourke's daughter, as played by Gabby Hoffman, Christina Ricci was considered for this role. And again, I can see why they would consider her for it. 
Mm, I don't. I mean, I suppose it would have been a bit different, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. She'd have been a bit more... She'd probably been a bit more like a goth, I'd imagine. Um, possibly, maybe. It, 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 it is possible. I mean... I, <laughs> I mean, we'll, we'll we'll get into Gabby Hoffman in a little bit there, but I I can personally see why they would would uh, would consider Christina Ricci, but I do think they made the right choice here. Under consideration for the role of Norman Calder, uh, as played by John Corbett, David Duchovny and Dermot Mulroney were both considered for this role. And I mean, I, I, w- I want your take on this one because I have my thoughts on Norman Calder uh, as, you know, the way John Corbett portrayed him. But if Duchovny or Mulroney were in this. I, I, there's, there's, I mean, I might be kind of looking at this a bit too much, but I just genuinely think there is clearly, you know, an X-Files fan out there who's like, can we just get the X-Files duo in this? Like anywhere, like anywhere. Just, can we just get them in it? Uh, it kind of feels like it. You're Julian Anderson on one hand and David Duchovny on the other, and you're thinking surely there's something going on here. But oh yeah, I mean, I'm sure when they're they're looking at these scripts and they probably put the you know the names up on the whiteboard, say, like, oh hey, who do we think for this one? Who do we think for this one? And then you sit there and look at it and go, okay, so we've just cast the entire everyone from X Files into this, so we can't do that. So we need to start changing our minds here. Now, apparently, in the role of Mike Rourke, as played by Tommy Lee Jones. The role was originally offered to both Ed Harris and Bill Pullman, uh, you know, getting your uh, your Independence Day uh, notes in there, but also under consideration were Bruce Willis, Patrick Swayze, and <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger. So I don't know wow. how you would go from Tommy Lee Jones to Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, the Ed we Harris. Got to a <laughs> we need to get LA to chill. No, um. <laughs> um <laughs> Nice, love it. I'm, ha- I'm having Batman and Robin flashbacks again here. <laughs> I love that film. I can't help it. I'm sorry. But considering <laughs> the portrayal of of uh, of Mike Rourke as done by Tommy Lee Jones, I can see why they would consider and offer the role to both Ed Harris and Bill Pullman. They kind of fit into that mold. Yeah, like Bill Pullman. Uh, I think is it is it after Twist this film? I think it is. Isn't it? It's Twist in '95. Something like that. Twist yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, th- he makes sense. Can't believe he's gone, but he he makes sense. Like that kind of character makes sense in his role, and Ed Harris as well. Obviously, he's bounced off Apollo thirteen, which was ninety five. Mm-hmm. So you know, yeah, I can I can totally see that. Would have been a slightly different, maybe a bit more serious, because Tommy Lee Jones has that kind of like he's in charge. Like I want I want a job. I want a job in my life where I can literally just turn around and shout at people. I just I'd love to be in that job. Like get me a geologist. Get me a stylist. Get me, you know, like, just get me a cupcake. Like, just get me, get me anything, you know. I just, I want that job. I yeah. will say, if they had cast Bruce Willis in that role, then the building they had to knock down had to have been Nakatomi Plaza. <laughs> Come yeah, to the coast. Stay a while. Be fun. Yeah, no. <laughs> the movie is directed by Mick Jackson, who also directed Clean Slate and The Bodyguard. And at the 18th annual Razzies, this film was nominated for Worst Reckless Disregard for Human Life and Public Property and lost to Con Air. I kind of, I kind of agree with that one, although I, I could see why this was nominated for Reckless Disregard for Human Life and, you know, especially Anne Hesh's <laughs> assistant down in the tunnel. Oh, yeah, they just don't care. But I'm sorry, I've, I've got to mention um, Mick Jackson, who directs this film. He also directed, I doubt many people stateside or, or 
the other side of the Atlantic will have seen this. Um, uh, it's called Threads. It's a 1984 um, British um, apocalyptic war drama that was uh, produced between Britain and Australia, and it went on the BBC, and it's basically about the aftermath of a nuclear um, nuclear attack, and it spans like 40 years after, up to 40 years after. I think America had one that I've not seen yet called uh, The Day After, the year before, that's similar to that. But he directed that, and um, if you want to give yourself nightmares, um, yeah, Threads 984. But, so anyways, I had to get that in there. It's you know a great what? film. It's funny you mention that, because I'll admit, I haven't seen the film yet, but I have it's seen rough. it, it on rough. lists of movies, of movies that are hard to watch, and I'm just like, I'm mildly now intrigued to watch this. It's, it's it's one it's a great film, but it is not one of those to watch if you've had a rough day. It's not like it's not a pick me up one. You don't want to watch it after a you know a hard week at work or you know you're having a rough. You don't want to watch it if you're feeling a bit down. But in terms of just following ordinary, it's set in the north of England, um, so people sound more like me than they do what you're used to listening to if you're, um, British people on television. And it, it's very much it's very eighties because it was filmed then. It, but not in a kind of over-the-top way. It's just very realistic. Um, the bomb drops on Sheffield, and basically it, it follows the the few survivors that there are, but it also kind of goes past all the rubbish at the time about how you can, you know, you can survive and this, that, and the other. And it's it's pretty grim. It is pretty grim. And, um, and quite, you know, it, it doesn't pull its punches at all, to be honest. Um and I think it's sometimes you need it because I think in films like Terminator, as good as they are, it makes, not that Terminator made a nuclear war look survivable, but it makes you look like loads of people will survive when actually a, a lot of people won't. But anyway, it's, yeah, anyway. I mean, it's, it's depressing. <laughs> growing up in the Cold War era as well, I mean, I still remember watching the animated film When the Wind Blows, which was released in 1986. Oh, I've actually got the I've actually got the comic, uh, the book of that. that yeah. And and that's one of those ones where it's it's stark, right? And you sit there and you're watching the this you know, this older couple, you know, try to survive after the the nuclear bomb goes i apparently there is something wrong with with hollywood and filmmakers because they like to make films that about everyone dying well i think i think those like threads and um when the wind blows i think they were made to show that this is not because a lot of what the governments were doing at that time america Britain only because I know I'm sure the countries around the world would do but there were you know they had all this thing about civil defense which is pretty much all gone now but they had all this thing around civil defense and they made it sound like the second world war they made it sound like yeah a bomb will drop but if you do this and you follow these instructions and you use a bucket with a bit of a bin liner in it for your toilet you'll be okay and you're like those films show you like yeah this reality the reality would be very very different um so yeah, I think it's uh, interesting in that respect. Now, big budget disaster films can make a little bit of money at the box office, but not all the time. This is one of those latter cases because the film had a budget of $90 million. Domestically, it only made $49 million and worldwide $122 million. When it was released on the April 25th, 1997 weekend, it debuted at number one with $14.5 million dollars just above, well, actually double, 
Romy and Michelle's high school reunion, which also debuted that week and only made seven and a half million dollars. So really, the, the path was kind of clear for Volcano to take number one, but it only lasted for one week at number one. Although that being said, Romy and Michelle's high school reunion is a disaster of another kind of film. But you know, we're not going to touch that one just yet here. Uh, but the reason why we are here, not because we like disaster movies or because you've mentioned this film, but the critic scores. Over at Metacritic, this film has a meta score of 55. And over at Rotten Tomatoes, the Tomatometer, the critic score, is 49%, so in line with the meta score. But the audience score is only 32%. And this is where I have to sit there and say, why? Because this is actually a decent film. Um, Yeah, I don't know about the other one. But I put no stock in Rotten Tomatoes. I think it's, I I think, uh, I w- you could argue that it's absolutely full of crap. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not arguing that. I'm just saying some people can, but I don't believe a word of Rotten Tomatoes. I think it's one of the worst things you can go to for any kind of score because it just, yeah, I, hmm. No, I don't, I don't trust it in the slightest. <laughs> well, there is that story that came out where apparently uh, some movie companies are being uh, accused of hiring critics to give uh, ratings on Rotten Tomatoes, whether it be in favor or not. And I'm just like, so you're paying them to do their job? But... It's just, it, you know, it's just some films you look at, you know, and they get like the same as like the Shawshank Redemption in percentage or, and you just think, this is just insanity. It just, mm-hmm. it, I don't, I don't trust it in the slightest, and I think people have seen where the scores have changed, or because they essentially set the rules for what they're, because they have to figure out what a good or a bad review is. So, I'm very dubious about it. I don't use it in my podcast. I never have done. I don't blame people for using it, and I wouldn't tell anybody to ignore it. But I put no stocking run in Rotten Tomatoes at all. I just don't. I don't even look at it. I don't bother. I, I will say for this podcast, we use it as basically a qualifier as far as movies that we talk about. And then we just sit here and say that the critics were wrong. But I want to I want to put this into perspective, though. OK, so when it comes to 1997 volcano movies, uh, Dante's Peak, of course, being the other one, the audience score on Rotten Tomatoes for Dante's Peak is a very comparable 38 percent in comparison to Volcano's 32 percent. So. Obviously, people are, you know, hit or miss and more likely miss on Volcano films. But it's the critic score that really surprises me because Dante's Peak to me seems more of the, the as far as a disaster film goes, seems more of the film that would be more of the critical darling of the two. However, when you compare the tomatometer for Volcano, which sits at 49%, Dante's Peak tomatometer sits at 28%. And that really surprises me on this one like if i'm if i'm going to ask you which would you prefer volcano or dante's peak like i'm sitting here holding two vhs tapes in my hand you have to pick one to watch which one are you choosing first oh first volcano first but only because i think you get the popcorn out of the way and then you sit down and you're in you're in for a bit more of a serious ride with uh, with dante's peak be curious uh, that, that's almost like the, the <laughs> like the pepsi taste challenge right you almost want to like put the you know put the two vhs tapes together and see how many people take one or the other i'm not, not curious if someone's ever actually done that but let's get into the breakdown of this film here we're going to start 
with Tommy Lee Jones, who plays Mike Rourke. How was Tommy Lee Jones in this film for you? Yeah, I mean, he, he does the standard Tommy Lee Jones thing. He, he takes the quips that we saw him have as, you know, Deputy Sam Gerard in The Fugitive a few years before. He takes what we'll see him... Oh, actually, yeah, Men in Black's not the same, yeah. So he has the same kind of... Well, he's a bit more joking in this one, but he's very much... Yeah, he's, he's probably like there would be. I, I don't know whether there would be this much shouting between... Because all the firefighters seem to do is shout... The, the chief just seems to shout at the DWP director of water power guy and he just shouts back until Rock comes in and shouts at them and he's like, cut cut this out type thing. And it's like, okay. Uh, so which I, I don't know if it will be, it will be like that. But um, yeah, he, he does a decent job. Uh, I think he holds the film together well. And I do like, you know, the interplay that you get between like him over the phone and I like the interaction between him and, uh, oh God, what the hell's his name? Um, uh, can't remember his name. It's gone out of my head. Emmett, who's played by Don Cheadle. Um, I like all that back and forth about how he's busy saying, oh, um, I want to be like Mike and I want to, he sat on his desk and stuff. I, I liked all that stuff. It was good. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are certain films that uh, you can almost sit there and say, well, this is the template for how the, you know, the roles that this actor is going to get. And when you think about the films in the 90s that Tommy Lee Jones was getting, uh, Fugitive is the first one that comes to mind where Tommy Lee Jones is in an authority figure and has to, you know, yell and, and, you know, be the boss of how to, to figure things out. This really did feel like it was in his wheelhouse. And, but there, there's a moment in this film and, you know, as I'm watching this, it's like, okay, it's Tommy Lee Jones, it's Tommy Lee Jones, it's, you know, but then there's this moment where they're trying to figure out how they're going to divert the lava from going towards Cedar sinai Hospital. By the way, uh, this film is, and I'm going to do the math here on this one, uh, 36 years old now, I guess, getting there. No, 26 years old? No, it's, no, 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 yeah, tw- yeah, 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 26 years old. Well, math, I didn't understand math was going to be on the test today, so clearly I failed anyways. But still, <laughs> we're closing in on 30 years for this film. So if you haven't seen it by now, shame on you. That's your fault. Um, but when they're trying to redirect the lava flow uh, before it hits Cedar sinai Hospital, and there's just this moment where he's run out of ideas, and he, he just stops like, I don't, I don't know, I don't know. And here is that kind of rare moment, that, that rare crack of humanity, that 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 almost the the authority shell drops from Mike Rourke. And I think Tommy Lee Jones was very good at doing that when the moment called for it. Yeah. Yeah, he does it again um later on. No, sorry, earlier on, sorry. Where he ring he talks to Emmett and he's like saying, This is what I need, this is what I need, I need this, I need that, which is exactly what you need in that situation. And then he says, oh, Kelly's at Cedar sinai And then he, he drops out of his professional part and he talks to Emmett like he's his friend and he says, you know, she got burned, Emmett. And and, you, and he has a pause of like, oh, God damn it. And then then he goes again right back into his work. So that was, that was the moment I thought you were going to pick, but I agree. But it is a very similar moment in that part where you think, oh, yeah, this there is actually a guy underneath all this rather than just this guy running about going, I need this, I need that. That's the thing. Mike Rourke is not a superhero, right? He's not the guy that's going to do the everything himself. This this isn't some self-aggrandizing, you know, I'm going to 
um, stop, you know, stand in the middle of the street and, you know, redirect the lava myself with my mind. No, it's, he's, you know, directing a team. He's trying to come up with ideas on the fly and occasionally he draws a blank or occasionally he has to stop and remind himself that, you know, there are real human things going on rather than just dealing with the actual tragedy. It's a smarter script, I think, than a lot of people are going to give this credit for, at least when it comes to the writing of Mike Rourke. Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. Although he does take an awful lot of personal calls, I've got to be honest. I mean, he takes a lot of personal calls. It's I don't think I'd get away with that at work. It's like every other call, he's like, this street's on fire. Where's Kelly? Why isn't she with the babysitter? And it's like, okay, he's just... And then, you, and then you get, obviously, the other guy trying to ring him, uh, who's just forever swaying down the phone, the chief or whoever he is. Mm. But, you know, shout out to the flip flones in, in this film because it's ma- making me remember the old Motorola Crazers and stuff like that. But, yeah, no, there's it's 1997. It's almost 30 years old. It, it, we're talking some old technology. It's it's not the brick phone that they used to that they used to have. He's got, he's got a flip phone. It's okay. Anne Hesh, who played Dr. Amy Barnes, I'm not going to lie. I actually kind of liked her in this role, but how was Anne Hesh for you in this role? I mean, she does what she can. She does what she can uh, with it. I think they kind of have a bouncing out of it. Although, I'm sorry, I mentioned this on my own podcast, but I've got to mention it again because it still rankles. She's a geologist. She's very clever. She's confident. She stands in front of the press all day. Why on earth, when she's looking for Mike Rock's daughter, and I get she's a bit desperate, but why does she climb on top of a news truck and scream at a crowd of about 3,000 people? Kelly Rourke! Kelly Rourke! It's like, yeah, she's, she's not going to hear you. You're wasting your time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was that was a bit daft. That was a bit silly. But uh, no, I'm, I'm just poking fun. But no, I mean, she, she, was, she was okay. She was mm-hmm. all right. I never really bought the whole romance thing that we're trying to set up to be honest but you know, it is what it is uh but i did like the kind of the way she is with the you know because especially when at the beginning when they try to decide what to do you get you get stan best character in it rest in peace stan uh you get him uh from the is it mta metro rail or whatever it is mm-hmm. uh you get um her from the geologist you get mickey rock obviously was from uh sigs not sigs uh uh, OEM, the Office of Emergency Management. And they're all there. They're all trying to figure out, oh, the DWP guy. And they're all arguing about like, what we should do. And we can't do this. We can't do that. I like the sarcasm between everybody. And I like that she fires it back as well. I like that. And I like that they didn't go down the route of, like, she just holds her own. And, like, um, I mean, she, she just kind of mentioned it when, when uh, she mentions about, like, it. Uh, <laughs> When she's like, "Oh, it's it's too it's too hot, it's too uh, it's too dangerous for you, little honey. Go home," type thing. She just mentioned it once, but um, you know, she holds her own, which I quite liked. Um, but yeah, I mean, but tell your friend not to kneel, stand or kneel over a bloody big crack in the concrete. It's like, come on, like what were you what were you thinking? Um, <laughs> but no, she 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 does a good job. To be fair, she she does all right. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I do like the confidence that she gave Dr. Amy Barnes in certain moments, right? Uh, coming in to, to deal with the press because that's a, that's a known commodity for her. And especially when you see, uh, you know, how Lori Latham, who played Rachel, definitely does not want to talk to the press. You know, you know, this is the kind of role that that Dr. Barnes is. <laughs> yeah, I love that line. Yeah, I love I, that line where she's like, I'm going to throw up. And the guy's like, yeah, that's not the kind of message we want to put out there. <laughs> <laughs> so, th- so those moments really work well. And the thing, too, is that when Dr. Barnes is actually doing geologist stuff, you know, I, I get that's probably not the technical term, but I'm, I'm just going to use it anyway. Geologist stuff, right? The mechanics of what her career is, you know, that's where the confidence comes in. You know, she's she's going to check the temperature of this of this dirt pile that's kind of probably holding back a ton of magma. You know, you know, thinking about the ley lines, thinking about the 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 topography of LA and what the flow would be and that kind of stuff. This is where Dr. Amy Barnes is. You know, in her comfort zone, but there's those moments, and, I, and you mentioned it too when you know she's trying to find Mike's daughter. This is a uh, this is not part of the geologist's job. This is not part of her comfort zone. So, I I do see why it kind of makes sense where it's like, okay, I I know how to track earthquakes and all this kind of stuff. I don't know how to find a person in a mass crowd of fleeing humanity and kind of lost in those moments. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I do, I do like the fact that she says, you know, she's she portrays what scientists are like quite well in that she says the line, um, she says, "I'm I'm a scientist." Certain's a big word, mm-hmm. and that it is. No scientist is ever going to tell you, yes, this is one hundred percent safe. Yes, this is one hundred percent one because there's always that one little tiny little chance that one person you know, won't react like everybody else, you know, so not talking about anything in particular, but so it, it's something that they don't do. They can't do it. They can never say, you know, well, there's, you know, there's never going, the, the sky's never going to turn green because there's a minute possibility through all this ridiculous that it might turn green. Who knows? You know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned too the, the quote unquote romance between the two, you know, as, as things are developing, I like the fact that it didn't end with one of those, you know, typical cinematic Hollywood kisses in the middle of the devastation kind of thing. It did. The movie didn't call for that. And I'm glad that they didn't try to shoehorn that in. And the moments between the two of them where they're, you know, you think that something, you know, if they survive, this might happen down the road. Those moments also coincide when Mike is having his human moments, you know, when he's, conf- you know, begging her to find his daughter, right? Th- these are very human moments. This, this this isn't her being attracted to authority. This is her understanding um, the need for Mike to be able to put aside the authority in order to be able to deal with what's important to him and his family. So I can see why those moments are very, very small and not overt. And it's not like they try to shoehorn in uh lead co-star romance. I, I, th- I think that part at least was handled well. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say so. And I think like just after the meeting, Rachel's like, so you like him? Okay, she's not that nineties teenager, but she, she, uh, she's like, Oh, so you like him then. And she, and she's like, well, he's okay. And I like that. Cause that was, that's probably how most people would be. I think you don't, you know, very few times do you meet somebody and you're just like, oh my God, my future lies with them. Um, so I, I did like that kind of realistic way of going about it. Um, 
Well, especially yeah. for a scientist too. You know, they're going they're going to sit there and not exactly you know certainty is not a word that they like, right? So she's not yeah. certain she likes him. So I I, I kind of get that. Don Cheadle uh, playing Emmett Reese. So Mike Rourke's basically his number two. Um, again, another fun role here, but Don Cheadle for you. I will call him number two. Sorry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I couldn't resist when you said number two. I was thinking. Uh, number yeah. two works for Mike. Yeah. We, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, Don Cheadle's good. Uh, I like the whole back and forth. Like, uh, oh, I know the actor's face, but I can't remember his name. When the other guy in the, the one of the other guys in the control place says to him, oh, I like that hat or something. And he says, oh, yeah, you know, that, that's funny. Your wife rolled over and said the same thing to me this morning. And I just, you know, I, I liked the way he is. He's, he's clearly very capable. Like Mike's clearly come from wherever, Louisiana, wherever he's come from. And he's the new, you know, head of OEM. And he's meant to be on vacation slash holiday, uh, as we know it over here. And he comes back in because, you know, the earthquakes and everything um, are getting pretty bad. And, you know, Emmett's there, and I'd for, I hadn't realised this in the first time. Like, I don't know why I noticed it for the first time, because I've seen this film a lot. But the first time you meet Emmett, he's got his feet up on, like, Rock's actual desk. So I was like, yeah, okay, okay, that's that's a bit funny. But, yeah, he's, he's pretty cool, and he, he clearly pulls together a lot of what he needs to. Because um, I've, I've always been interested in, in, you know, when you get disaster scenarios those people who are there going, we need this, 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 and this. I don't want any BS. That's what we need. Get it now. Like, oh, well, like, because as it says at the beginning in the little in the title, it says, you know, the Office of uh, Emergency Management, it can basically just take anything it wants in the city, in the state of emergency, um, which, yeah, I, I just thought that was interesting. Good character. Good character. Mm-hmm. I, the thing I think I like about Emmett Reese is that, a, it's not an adversarial relationship, right? Obviously, Emmett eventually is going to want Mike's job, right? And it's not like they're playing, you know, that Mike is, you know, this close to retirement, you know, too old for the <laughs> pull the lethal weapon kind of thing. Um, you know, they're they work well together, and obviously, it's a relationship built on communal respect knowing that the other is you know each, each of them are both very confident in their job and the fact that mike can tease emmett about wanting his job means that yeah he's going to get the job but the thing is too like there's these moments where where emmett is without mike and he's in the control room and he's cracking he, he's he's he has a sense of levity about him, but it almost feels like that levity is a defense mechanism for dealing with the chaos that's going on around him. Yeah, I mean, you get that kind of dark humor. I mean, I'm, I'm not, uh, nor have I been, but it's like people in the military and things like that, they have, or people in emergency services, they have dark humor because they see horrific things and you've got to deal with it somewhere. You know, the whole, if you didn't laugh, you'd cry. Mm-hmm. So I think that helps because also and you could argue it you know it calms people you know if you're there being proficient in your job and saying this is what we need we need this that and that but at the same time you you know you've got the wherewithal um to to you know crack a bit of a joke and try and calm people down and people look up to you because he isn't when rock's not there he's in command of that whole room and he's the whole the department, and he's basically saying, "We need this." And if the others in that room can look up to him and be like, "Yeah, things are things are really you know, there's fires, there's lava, there's crashes, there's all sorts," but 
yeah, look at him. Like he's getting on with it. He's keeping calm. He's also cracking like the odd joke. Don't get me wrong. He's not up there with a squeaky clown nose or anything ridiculous like that. But it it just it would probably calm people. It calm me down if I was in that situation to think right. Well, if he's keeping calm, then I'm keeping calm. I suppose is how I'd look at it. Yeah, and it's not like it's not like he's cracking like Eddie Murphy type jokes. You know, he's it's it's proper for the moment levity. John Corbett, who plays Norman Calder, uh, the husband of the nurse oh, who was working in triage God. here. Um, I found this fascinating because even though, you know, we'd mentioned that Dermot Mulroney and David Duchovny were up for this role. I always equate John Corbett with the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding, which is so not volcano. Um, but it's one of those things where it's an unassuming role and I, I have my thoughts on it, but John Corbett for you. Oh, I mean, he, he does, he, he plays it well in the small screen time he gets, but oh, Norman is just a complete, to use an Americanism, douche. He is, I want you treating tennis elbow, not gunshot wounds. It's like, oh, get out of here. You, you make me sick. Like he, like he turns up and he's like, you, uh, Jane, you've done enough. It's like, She's a doctor, you absolute buffoon. There's clearly a major disaster going on. She's not just going to go, oh, okay, Norman, I'll come home and put your feet in water and give you a massage. It's just not the kind of woman she is. So, and I like the fact she just doesn't even answer him. She's like, I am, I am answering you, like, get out of here type of thing. Um, I just think, oh, just get out of here, you do my head in. I mean, who, who does, who takes a woman to, who takes, sorry, who takes their partner to a big office building and go like, this is where I want you to live and that's where I want you to work. I mean, that it's like, this isn't sleeping with the enemy, Norman. Just calm yourself down. Calm yourself down. Like, what, you know, she's clearly a very independent person. Like, what are you doing? And yes, I know people, it's Volcano. And you probably think, God, you need to calm down like this. Yeah, but like, genuinely, just, he's such an unlikable character. And it's like, what, why? I don't know. He's just in that long line of like 1990s, characters that are just there to be just douches basically i think yeah i mean dr jay calder is played by jacqueline kim she got actually a decent amount of screen time given that she's the the embodiment of the triage that's going that's going on at cedar sinai and norman while you know has those you know brief introductory moments we don't really get too much of norman so unfortunately it's one of the situations where we know he's he's not the best person, but we don't spend enough time on him for me to really care that she just told him to F off without saying F off, right? Um, it's, you have to, if you're going to have a, a side story with, with, with people in a disaster film, you have to give them the space for me to care what happens to them. And while I think we got that with Dr. J Calder, we didn't get enough with Norman for me to really, you know, be invested in him being given the shaft. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do think he doesn't need to be there. I think a few of the characters don't need to be there. Um, like the film would not, would not be harmed by not having them there. Yeah. Uh, to be honest. It's almost like he's there to emphasize how good a person Dr. Jay Calder is. And since we're talking about her, let's talk about Jacqueline Kim in that role. I actually really liked her in this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the whole scene where, um, well, the, the 
fire truck, uh, sorry, the fire appliance gets hit by a, a big flaming rock that flies out of the, uh, the Le Brea tarpits. Uh, that's a great practical effect, by the way, like that scene where the engine uh, just like tips and yeah, that, that's a, it's a good scene, very action packed. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, you get the scene where she's treating the firefighters on essentially the pavement or sidewalk, whatever you want to call it. Um, and she's there treating them in the middle of the road, the middle of the street. And, She's and he and obviously Rock runs over and says like don't touch them, which is he's exactly right. Don't touch them because you make it worse. And she's like, no, no, I'm a doctor. Blah blah blah. Um, although I I don't get why. Oh mind you, I don't know where the pages were, but like she says, oh here's my page number, here's my card and my details, and then they don't. Oh no, they do they ignore me. They do find her, and then she's like, oh she's in the yeah anyway yeah um, in the Hard Rock yeah 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 <laughs> um. Chasing after the little kid, yeah, um, little devil, uh, yeah. It's um, where was I going with that? Yeah, she's she's yeah, she's okay. To be, I mean, yeah, she's she's good. I think people are people are decent in this, but I think there's too many there's too many side characters in it that you just, you just don't need. I mean, I don't know if we're going to come up with yet, but you you do not need the police officers uh, with the with the resident guy. Like, what's all that going on? Like, what what's all that? Like, I know it's topical at the times about, you know, the police and communities and certain communities, you know, not, not trusting the police and vice versa. I get that. But why is it in here? Like, it, because I don't get political on my podcast, so I'll try not to want this. But all I mean by this is that if you're going to tell that story and you really want to delve into it, go for it. But don't skim over the top. Mm-hmm. Just in there for no reason. Like, it's completely pointless. It's completely pointless. Uh, and I, I don't, I, I just think that's completely, just get rid of it. Get rid of it. Give us more time with Raw. Give us more time with Anne Hesh's character because I feel she doesn't get enough. She just feels like she follows him around and, you know, uh, although a few times she just go off on her own and figure stuff out, which I quite like. But you just think, just, just get rid of her. I don't, I don't need her. Um, I, I want more of the police woman from the beginning who's like, how about I tell your ass? I want more of her. That's what I want. <laughs> I don't, I, don't, I don't want more. I don't want, you know, I don't want Norman and I don't want the, you know, the resident and, and the cops. I don't, I don't get that because it felt like it had been crowbarred in, like somebody in the room was like, oh, by the way, we are setting this in you know, Los Angeles in the early 90s or the mid 90s. So can we throw a little bit of, uh, how do I put it, a bit, can we throw a bit of antagonism in there between like the police and that? Mm-hmm. We'll never do it. It's completely pointless, superfluous, shallow. It's not needed. Well, I'm not saying it's not needed, but the way they do it makes it it's just a non and What did you bother doing it for? It's not funny. It's not, it just is no reason to be there. It annoys me a little bit. But um, yeah, but, but uh, yeah, sorry. I went completely off on one there. <laughs> oh, it's okay. It's okay. Uh, this actually was part of my my notes uh, when, it, when it came to uh, Marcello Thetford, who did play Kevin. But I will say, just getting back to Jacqueline Kim for a second here, Dr. J. Yeah, Calder. Sorry, yeah. She's one of the, the key side stories I think I would definitely keep because, you know, when it comes to a situation, especially for a disaster in the middle of a major metropolitan center like Los Angeles, and with the, you know, with the lava making its way towards the 
cedar cyanide that part makes sense i liken her portrayal of dr jay calder similar to uh Sella ward who of course played um the the nurse slash wife in the day after tomorrow um, and how she was staying behind in the hospital to look after the uh, the one patient there um, as the as the cold was kind of coming in there. I just I just don't buy that whole I don't buy that whole that whole premise is absolutely horrendous. Oh, it really is. Oh, I mean, it's like what what is the only kid the only person in that entire hospital who can't be moved. Like, there's no ICU, there's no intensive care unit, there's no, like, really? Like, he's the only one? And, like, all the power's gone, but you haven't frozen to death? And, like, and it's just, oh, no, I'm not. Anyway, so it just, it just makes me laugh. I love the film, but it's just like, no, come on. I'm cleverer than this. Right. Mark, more clever than this. I, I mean, word. you do have to suspend a ton of disbelief with some of these movies here. Um, but at least Dr. J. Calder's role, I completely get. But you brought the whole um, antagonism between Kevin and like the racist cop. And, you know, I don't want to get too political. I'm completely with you on that. You know, we try to stay just on the movie itself and the performances in the film. Um but I do understand why they try to shoehorn this angle in there because you're not that far removed from the, the Rodney King incident. Um, and I think there, there's a line in this film that doesn't necessarily have to deal with that side story, but it tells us why they felt they needed to put something like that in there. And it's after uh, the building has been knocked down and the lava flow is redirected and everyone's cheering and, and, and whatever. And Keith David, uh, the police officer, Lieutenant Ed Fox is holding the kid that was saved from, um, you know, by, by Kelly and Mike and, uh, you know, he's saying like, you know, do you, do you recognize your, your parents? And he's like, yeah, my parents look like everyone looks the same. And it's that line that says that there's an underlying story here that in moments of tragedy and destruction and, you know, life threatening peril for mother nature, humanity is supposed to all be on the same side and it's supposed to all work together and so this little kid's observation that everyone looks the same because they're all covered in volcanic ash, which, you know, is there's actually a term for getting volcanic ash in, in your lungs. It's pneumonia ultramicroscopic silicovolcanic eosis, which is one of the longest words I know. And I still remember that from being taught that in grade school. But it's one of those things where and you saw this, too. Um, and, and I hate to bring this up, but just. Some of the visuals that you saw on 9-11 with everyone covered in dust from the, the towers and everyone did look the same. So I understand why they tried to shoehorn it in, but I do agree that from a storytelling perspective, there were a few too many side plots in yeah. this. I don't disagree with the idea. I don't disagree with the message. You know, it's because it's like the message of original Star Trek, which I love, which is we'll get past this. We'll get past a lot of these issues that we have we'll get past this we're better than this we can do better but it's not preachy about it the way they do it in this it's just so apologies you probably won't understand what this means it's so cack handed mm-hmm. uh, cack is a British a British word for crap basically duty that kind of thing right 
I don't think I've ever said that word before in my life. I've been I, watching a lot of Scrubs recently. That's okay. Uh, but I, I, <laughs> on, on this side of the ocean, we'll probably say like it's ham-handed. Yeah, yeah, but it's, yeah, it's just ham-handed. It's just really, it's really ham-fisted. Like you know, it's it's just it's done in such a way where it's like really didn't need that, and it's so obvious. Like I mean, like the guy called uh, I think he calls the cop Mark Furman, who's one of the cops that was obviously involved with the whole OJ Simpson trial and everything like that. Um, and he says, oh, I'm going to be the volcano version of Rodney King. And it's like, if you're going to, if you're going to have this in it, at least do it properly. But it feels so out of place. It feels so out of place in a film like Volcano, you know, it, because it's, it's, it's not that serious a film. So like when the film's like, you know, got, Th- things happening in it and then all of a sudden it it, it uh, you know a, a basketball rolling down the street and oh my god the floor's gonna turn it's like right i'll go with you and then the next minute it's trying to have this really serious message it's like yeah th- this isn't this isn't matching up and i think i'm not having got the writers but there was a there was a there was a way you could have done it but i don't know i don't think it needs to be there but i, I kind of get i get why it is there because for the time and I do, I do understand. I do understand why it's there, but I think it it feels like an afterthought. It feels like they kind of went, "Oh, by the way, can we just can we crowbar a bit of this in?" It's like you didn't need it. But anyway, not to get all serious, it's volcano. <laughs> but you know what I mean, it's volcano. Right. I mean, let's be honest. This film is about as subtle as a volcano in the middle of Los Angeles. So you know, we're we're, we're dealing we're grading on a curve when it comes to subtlety here. Um, however, there is a crime committed in this film and that is a a criminal underuse of one mr keith david who plays lieutenant ed fox in this i mean i personally love keith david Uh, i think he has a phenomenal voice i think he has a great presence uh even in even in movies and shows that aren't the best movies and shows anytime keith david pops up i'm like okay i'm in i'm sold i'm good um but uh, speaking of you know side plots and side characters that don't necessarily or they they're it's just a little too much and it's just completely glossed over because there's not enough space to tell those stories this feels like a criminal under usage of Keith David yeah i'd agree completely and then we have someone who's not underused Gabby Hoffman playing Kelly Rourke now you had mentioned that you can't really see Christina Ricci being um you know being considered for this but how was Gabby Hoffman in the role for you Right. I don't know how old she's meant to be because at the beginning she's talking about getting her nose pierced, which I presume even in America, no offense, you've got to, (laughs) you've got to be at least 16 for that. Right. I don't know. I don't know the rules. And then you have her acting like she's like, as soon as they leave the house, she starts acting like she's like eight. He's like clutching a teddy, doesn't know what to do. She's, I mean, don't get me wrong, it's going a bit mad around her, admittedly, but it's, it's, it, I don't know, I don't understand. It felt like, and again, I'm doing it again, I'm guessing, I'm making assumptions, but on a podcast, it's what we do, right? I didn't make the film, I wasn't there, I wasn't old enough to do it. But for me, it's like, it feels like she started off, and I don't know this, I've not read it anywhere, and I have done the trivia for this before, for my own. It feels like she was meant to be a much younger kid, and for whatever reason, they were like, oh, no, no, we want to make her older. But then they didn't work that back into the script. Um, 
it, I know it feels like I'm nitpicking with the film. I'm, I'm just, it's just little nitpicks. I do enjoy it, but it's a podcast. So, you, you know, people surely want us to discuss it, right? <laughs> but um, it is very much like, like what, like, I don't know. A characterization is a bit off. She does, she does a decent job. Does a good job, but um, yeah, it's uh, all, yeah. I, I don't get why she stands and looks at the big lava thing for it. It's, it's like move away from it. It's like it's clearly quite hot. Like move away from it, but no, just stand there and let it burn you. Right. But, um, yeah, I, I, and it, that's the only time that it does that as well. You never see the lava bombs do that to anybody else. So very convenient for the story. Yeah, I mean. I, I will say that her portrayal of Kelly in this reminded me more a little bit of Natalie Portman in 1995's Heat. Um, as as far as I've not yeah. seen Heat yet, oh, I know. You're I know. A good one. I know. I know. I know. Sorry, go on. <laughs> That's okay. Just in uh, case you said a spoiler, I, I I've just heard it's amazing, and I don't. It, it is a phenomenal sure. film. It is paced very purposefully, I will say, uh, and very well for its purpose. But I, uh, Natalie Portman's um portrayal as the daughter in that as Al Pacino's daughter um reminds me a little bit of Kelly War but I think there's something really good about Kelly in this and let, let me explain so you have clearly a uh, it feels like a, a a divorced parent kind of situation with the wife kind of you know, repping on Mike for leaving her at home with a babysitter during all of this kind of thing and that she is ridiculously um, she has anxiety when it comes to disasters and earthquakes and whatnot. And when you realize what Mike does for a living, you know, heading up the, the office of emergency management, you have to think that all of the work that he probably brings at home and all the times he gets called into work is because bad things happen like earthquakes, like fires, like anything that could possibly happen in California. So all of his bring home they, work. Why do they live there? <laughs> I, I don't know. I really don't know, right? It's, it's like the weather's nice, sure. The ground occasionally rumbles, but the weather's nice, you know? But Yeah, yeah, swings and roundabouts, I suppose. Right, but when you think about it, all his work conversations and all of his work that he brings home centers around what could absolutely positively be the worst case scenario that could happen in the city that they live in, you know? So... And if something were to happen, he would have to jump into action to be able to take care of it rather than take care of her. So I can understand the anxiety that Kelly would have in dealing with the, you know, in the face of danger. So someone who freezes up in that moment probably comes, probably stems from the idea that her father, by the very nature of his job, could not be there for her in those moments. So there, there's a very smart use of anxiety in Kelly for that. And then the fact that it's not her dad that helps her develop the courage and the responsibility level of looking after these kids and the hard rock, the fact that that comes from Dr. J Calder as opposed to her father, that makes sense too, because more often than not, um, Kids will write, you know, when they say, well, who's your inspiration? Who inspired you to do this? More often than not, most kids are not going to say, well, my parents, right? It's going to be someone who they look up to outside of the family unit. So in this moment of tragedy, and Dr. Calder is, you know, very assertive and calm and in control of everything that's happening. And she's helping 
people right in front of her. This is where she's pulling her strength from as opposed to from her father. And I think that makes sense as well. So while at times you, you may sit there and say, well, yeah, you should put Christina Ricci in or you could have put an Allie Portman in. I think Gabby Hoffman did very well. And I think Kelly is scripted smartly for someone who I, I agree with you. I think she's probably about 16, but she's a 16 year old with um, earthquake anxiety issues, I think. Yeah, yeah. And uh, to be fair, though, I mean, I, I do gather they've just moved there. So maybe she's not used to the quakes and things because don't they mention he's come from, I don't think it's, they do jokes. I can't remember where he's from. But aren't they saying he's from Louisiana or somewhere? He's come from somewhere else, hasn't he? Outside of the whole LA basin, I presume. I might be getting my, my geography's not great for America. But I presume he's come from somewhere else. Uh, so maybe, maybe she's getting used to like living there and I don't, we don't know whether she lives with her dad full time or with her mom full time. Uh, I, I don't think the script writer's new to be honest. I don't think anyone cared, but, uh, but um, yeah, I mean, I think she, she, maybe that's part of the prop the issue as well. I've no doubt if you drop me in LA and let me live there, I would probably <laughs> cack myself because I've never touched what, well, once a mini quake, but I've never experienced an earthquake. So I wouldn't know. I'd be completely lost. Yeah, no, I mean, if, if they w- came from Louisiana, then you're probably taking a look at, okay, so we went from earth uh, from hurricanes to earthquakes, so not an upgrade? Just thinking? Just better weather, maybe? Yeah, God, I don't, I don't know how you people, I don't, I don't know how Americans do it, I really don't. <laughs> I really don't. Well, and there's the thing, too, you have to think that if someone is being moved to take over the Office of Emergency Management in a city like Los Angeles that has a lot of emergencies to manage, you have to, the the character would probably come from a city that has enough problems of their own. And Louisiana, you know, in dealing with hurricanes that come up in the Gulf of Mexico, you would think that that would qualify someone to be able to handle a city like Los Angeles. Before we get to our MVPs, though, uh, social media has spoken out. The Time Shifters and Orphaned Entertainment Podcasts over on Spoutable chimed in with, if the Asylum Studios found a bag of money, they'd make something like this. If I recall, several studios had their own volcano movie at around the same time. Yes, Dante's Peak. I've only watched it once, but I recall the ending being a bit ridiculous. Traffic barriers to stop the lava, right? So... Yeah, I I can kind of see that. But also, the Movie Duel podcast chimed in with, one of only two films I've fallen asleep to in the cinema. (laughs) Some interesting parts, but it's ultimately so far out there, it's almost an asylum film with Hollywood money. And, I mean, obviously, we're talking about 1997 here. And the fact that both uh, of these podcasts, by the way, thank you to both of you guys for chiming in on this here. Um, They both reference the asylum and of course the asylum you know we we love the asylum over here the very first episode we did was on an asylum film mega shark versus giant octopus um but they kind of you know they, they live in that disaster film kind of you know mode for a lot of the times when they're not doing mockbusters and i but i get this is 1997 and we're not dealing with the level of cgi technology or compositing or whatever that 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 we're used to today like obviously volcano is not going to end up looking like 2012 just because film technology has advanced so much but going back and watching this it does at times feel like an asylum disaster film 
but we're talking about 26 years later down the road. So I will ask you, does Volcano hold up today? I think it does. I think they built uh, a mass. I think the CGI holds up pretty well. They used um, a lot of practical effects. They built a massive set in a warehouse of busy downtown LA and, and burned it. Um, I think, yeah, you know, it's not perfect. I think compared to the asylum, even for me, and if you've listened so far, you'll know I'm not exactly forgiven. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I, I can nitpick with the best of them, right? I think to compare this to the asylum, uh, I've not had the pleasure of either of those podcasts and feel free to reach out, but you're being incredibly harsh in my opinion. Like the, yeah, it's not, you know, the, you're not, you're not going to put this up there with the best scripts of all time, but to compare it to an asylum, I mean, dear God, have you watched some of those? They are absolutely shocking. I mean, they've got a charm to them for sure, but, you know, a certain charm. But, I mean, to compare them to that is, I mean, that's incredibly harsh. I mean, Um, I I think if you're taking a look at the, you know, the lava effects, again, 26 years removed uh, from the release of the film, then, yes, if you're comparing those lava effects to today's movie standards, you could sit there and say it might look like an asylum film. But, I I mean... I don't know, have have you seen the effects in The Flash? Seriously, like, <laughs> I mean, there's been some pretty bad stuff lately. So, oh, I, I, really? I don't disagree I mean, on that one. You know? But I mean, if you're going to compare it to a film like Jurassic Park, don't right. If you're going to compare it to, uh, you know, even a movie like the, the the Day After Tomorrow, which I think visually was actually quite well done, uh, that's probably not the way to go either. But I I do think that you know graphically and cgi wise i i think some of it doesn't hold up but you have to remind yourself that it's a 26 year old film and i think in a situation like this like if you go back and watch earthquake like and i love earthquake i think it's a great film um a lot of it doesn't hold up and a lot of those disaster movies don't hold up because you're dealing with the film technology at the time um but I, I remember watching this film when it came out and watching it over and over and over again on VHS. And I still find it to be, and I'm going to say this, to me, it is the better of the two 1997 Volcano films. I, I prefer this over Dante's Peak. And, you know, the fact that if that's the case, then it definitely holds up. And I mean, yes, I do like an asylum film, you know, um, for all of its cheesiness um, and the graphics and the CGI in those films definitely are a calling card if you will um but i agree it's it's not asylum level for the time that it was made but it may look like that with the gift of hindsight but it has come time so sean who is your mvp of volcano oh it's got to be stan it's got to be stan Uh, it just has to be his death is iconic i like him all the way through I would have taken a film just following Stan. That's what I want. I want a remake that's, that follows Stan's journey through this. I thought it was great. Yeah, that's my MVP. And and that's the thing, too, is that this is one of the things that I have to I have to question. By the way, uh, Stan Albert, played by John Carroll Lynch, um, he melts in the lava. And I, <laughs> I, I, I will admit, like, this is where Volcano and Dante speak have those those moments of self-sacrifice in diving into the, the, the lava to, to save other people. Or an acid lake. Yeah. Exactly. And that, 
since we're talking about this, I mentioned there was one part of Dante's Peak that I that I would sit there and just skip past because it's so cringe. That moment where the grandmother uh, jumps into the into the the acid lake and helps push the boat to to the to shore, and I'm just like, oh my god, this is so bad acting. Um, to be fair, right? They didn't need to be in that situation. If the grandma had have listened to uh, to to Linda Hamilton earlier and gone down the bloody mountain volcano right. away from it, she'd have been. It wouldn't have been in that situation. The kids raced back up to get grandma. Oh, she sacrificed some. Yeah, fair play to her. But she didn't need to be up there. She should have left. Right. I'm just, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Damn it, you know? grandma! Listen for once, will you? I know. Yeah. <laughs> get down the damn hill. Right, but but in this in this instance, Stan. His sacrifice makes sense. You know, he's there to try to save as many people as he can, and it's it's him and and the subway driver, right? And, and he knows he can't make that jump. He tries. He tries as best as he can. And I don't know if... It, obviously, no one's going to really know for real if this would happen or not, but if you jumped into, you know, an ankle's deep worth of, of lava, are you going to melt down into it? And... Yes, there's the suspension of disbelief, but it is a, a decent moment. But the thing is, that's where that side story ends, right there. We don't see those people afterwards. We don't see everyone else afterwards. It's a nice little bookend on that part. Um, and you are going to have those moments in disaster films where there's, you know, for lack of a better term, side quests. Um, and yeah, yeah Stan basically <laughs> well, got the, the death scene. Well, for every Stan... You get a guy like the news reporter who just sits in his car, describes what's happening. Firefighters, bless, they, they get burned alive. And he's like, oh my God, they're burned alive. And it's a bit like the Hindenburg. It's quite good. And then all of a sudden, he's still sat in his car. And then the lava's coming down the street and the firefighters are getting dragged off the road. And he's like, get them out of there. Drag them in off the road. It's like, why don't you get your, get your backside out of your car and, and actually help? Like, I know you're a reporter, but there's got to be a point where it's like, yeah, I should probably step in and help. Right, I can walk. I'm not injured. It's like, come on. And then, and, and, you know, the bus, the whole bus thing and the ladder. Uh, why do they shoot so many bullets at the tyres? If the, I mean, it, it could only, two, two bullets, that'll do. <laughs> why do we have, like, a, a tyre firing squad with the, I don't get that. Got more chance of it ricocheting back, but yeah, I don't know what, what we're gonna do. Those got to be some really, really good tires on the LA buses. Uh, oh. But since you mentioned the um, the reporters, uh, for my dear Canadian listeners here, this movie is the cinematic debut of one Miss Jillian Barbary. Uh, and if you watched uh, Fox Sports on NFL broadcasts, like you know, back in the you know probably like ten years or so ago, uh, she was uh, the woman who was the the weather and anchor for. For your Fox Sports broadcast on Football Sunday. She also started her career at the Weather Network here in Canada. So if you ever wonder where Jillian Barbary got her movie start, it's here in Volcano as a reporter. Uh, but getting to my MVP, uh, I tossed this one up. I in, was initially thinking Anne Hesh, but I really have to go. <laughs> really? <laughs> Sorry. I, I, the thing is, I, I actually <laughs> like her in this film. I can understand why they put her in this, but in the end, my, <laughs> my MVP is Don Cheadle. Yeah. I think there's something about Emmett that brings the appropriate level of levity to the situation without it being jokes for joke's sake. I think 
I think it humanizes Mike more than anybody else in this film. And it shows the, there's this moment where he's in the control room and he's on the phone with Mike and, and he's having problems hearing it. And he just tells everyone to shut up and everyone else stops immediately. And that in itself goes to show how important Emmett is in the department as much as Mike is. Don Cheadle played this very, very well. Um, and it's no wonder that he's now gone on to, you know, do so well in the MCU. So Don Cheadle is my MVP for this film. Sean, thank you so much for helping me go back down Volcano Road and give me an opportunity to to you know, wax philosophic about this movie. Before we go, please let our listeners know where they can find you and the Review It Yourself podcast. Uh, yeah, uh, no, thank you for having me on. One last bit of trivia for myself. Sorry, I did try and squeeze this in. Um, you you had a bit of trivia about the newsreaders. I've got a bit of trivia about a British newsreader. You see him talking, uh, say, oh, they've, they've uh, the British guy, obviously. They're like, oh, they've, uh, they've had this massive win over Mother Nature. That's um, a newsreader uh, who's an actual newsreader as well. But he's in, he's also in Shaun of the Dead. He's the newsreader who says, removing the head or destroying the brain. So there you go. And he's an actual newsreader as well. So just in case you wondered where you'd seen him from, uh, that's it. Um, which I missed when I did my own episode. So I had, I had to get it in there. <laughs> um, but no, thank you. Um, yeah. Um, uh, God, I hate this bit. I absolutely um, and uh, I'm Sean. I'm from the Review It Yourself podcast. Um, no politics, no pandering, no point. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Um, hopefully feel free to jump over and have a listen if you want to start with the episode we did the pirate movie seems a good place to start uh please do not go to the first episode nobody no podcaster alive wants you to go to their first episode not single one um but yeah i you know i say what i think i hope you enjoy it um <laughs> but i've always got a reason for what i say and and i just thank you for for, for having me back uh, sorry for, for having me on, really. And Sean, you, there's an open mic for, uh, for you on the show whenever you wish. And by the way, if you want to actually listen to that episode of Review It Yourself where we talked about the pirate movie, um, you can find Review It Yourself wherever you get your podcast. But you can also find that specific episode link on our guest appearances page on NotThatBadCast.com. Sean, thank you so much. And to our listeners, thank you for listening to this episode. Now, you guys know the drill. If there is a movie out there that you think is unfairly maligned, or is so bad that there's no way in LA that we can find anything good to say about it. Hit us up on social media at NotThatBadCast or go to our website at NotThatBadCast.com and while you're there, check out our other shows. There can only be one and keep watch pass or you can also go to our coming soon page and see some of the movies that we are working on episodes for. Drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you guys. Sean, thank you so much. Listeners, you guys are awesome. This is It's Not That Bad. I'm Jason. Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 